You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus tons of extra themed episodes if you want to improve your trivia game or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong then we're the show for you find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps but you know that because you're already listening to a podcast this is the constant a history of getting things wrong i'm mark chrysler and this is it's the little things volume two On March 19, 1286, the world was forever altered when King Alexander III of Scotland decided to brave a dark and stormy night so that he could celebrate his new wife Yolanda's birthday in his favorite style, by which I mean with sex. Instead of reaching her, he was thrown from his horse over a cliffside and died, setting into motion a series of events and usurpations, which eventually led to the establishment of United Rule of Britain under the House of Stuart, and, even further down the line, the creation of the United Kingdom. That much we know, but as I said a month ago now, there was another birthday party that arguably changed history even more drastically than Yolanda's. And like Yolanda's, it belonged to a person you're unlikely to have ever heard of before, Lucia Maria Molin, known to her husband, affectionately, as Lou. In advance of Lou's birthday, said affectionate husband had arranged a couple of gifts for her. He'd personally scoured the streets of Paris to find the finest pair of shoes in the most fashionable city in the world. But better still was that he would be there to give them to her. Lou had barely seen her husband for the last four years. He'd been working practically nonstop since August of 1939, and his work required that he travel endlessly. He'd been half a year in Poland, then France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Next thing she knew, he was off to North Africa, Egypt, and Libya, and Tunisia, then Greece, then Italy, and finally back to France, where he was able to find those shoes for Lou. She might have expected the shoes, but she didn't expect to see him. He was too busy, his work too important, things too stressful to get away for a silly birthday party. What Lou didn't know was that his work had been called off. The weather was too rough, there was nothing for him to do back in France, and so he decided to come back to Berlin to surprise her. What her husband didn't know is that the German meteorologists were wrong. There was going to be a clearing in the storm, just in time for Lou's birthday, June 6th, 1944. In the early dawn of D-Day, June 6th, 1944, the largest battle armada in history heads across 80 miles of rough channel water from England to the northern coast of France. The call came perhaps as they were having breakfast with their son Manfred. 
or perhaps more dramatically still, as she was opening her present or trying on her shoes. Whatever the exact placement, the call came in that morning that Erwin Rommel was needed back in France immediately. The weather had cleared, and the Allies were invading the beaches of Normandy. Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, known as the Desert Fox, was one of Adolf Hitler's favorite officers, although it's safe to say the sentiment didn't flow the other way unobstructed. He'd been a hero of the Great War, fighting on the Italian front where he'd helped create a new kind of military maneuver, infiltration tactics. He would take a small group of lightly armed infantrymen and sneak behind or around enemy lines, flank them, and take them by surprise. At the Battle of Caporetto, he'd managed to capture and subdue three Italian mountain strongholds over the course of just two and a half days. With just 150 German soldiers, he'd defeated an Italian force more than 9,000 strong. Then he did the same thing again in Longarone, tricking the entire 1st Italian Infantry Division into thinking they were surrounded. 10,000 soldiers surrendered. After the war, he was promoted and promoted again to the rank of lieutenant colonel. In 1934, he made an impression on the new chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler, and made it again when he published a book about his infiltration tactics in 1937, which inspired the German military to try the same sort of tactics again, but with tanks this time. The next war would be fought with Blitzkrieg. In 1937, Rommel was promoted again to be the war ministry liaison to the Hitler Youth, but it didn't work out. Rommel saw the Hitler Youth as a sort of German ROTC that should be answerable to the military, but Hitler and his inner circle saw the program as a paramilitary wing of the Nazi party to do with as they pleased. To get him out of the way, Rommel was promoted yet again to colonel and put in charge of a military academy in Austria. He spent the beginning of the war as second-in-command of Hitler's personal military escort, where he again distinguished himself in the Fuhrer's eyes. In August of 1939, he was promoted to Major General and put in charge of the Guard. Promoted once more to the rank of General, he was put in charge of one of Germany's panzer divisions and helped lead the invasion of France, driving all the way to the coast. Once France surrendered, Rommel was then put in charge of the German North African campaign, where he got that nickname, Desert Fox, winning significant battles around Libya and Egypt before finally the British beat him back into Europe. After an inauspicious stint in Greece and Italy, Hitler recalled Rommel and gave him a new assignment. He would be in charge of Normandy to prepare for and repel the Allied invasion the Germans knew was coming. They knew it was coming, and they knew it was coming soon, but it couldn't be coming on June 6, 1944, they thought, because their meteorologists were sure it was going to storm for the next two weeks. It was a stroke of luck. The one time Rommel knew he wouldn't be needed in Normandy was also his wife's birthday. He could bring her the shoes himself. Meteorologists on the Allied side, conversely, had reached a different conclusion than their German counterparts, and their operation was a whole lot swankier. The weather over the English Channel was rolling in mostly from the west and northwest. The Allies had been able to track the storm since it passed Newfoundland. They had weather bases all over Canada, the United States, and Great Britain. They had floating weather ships on the Atlantic. 
When the Nazis invaded Denmark, two of the Danish colonies, the islands of Greenland and Iceland, came under American and English protection, and that gave the Allies data from there, too. All of that information suggested there would be a hole, a brief window during which the landing in Normandy could take place. Suggested wasn't enough, though. They needed to be sure, which meant they needed a forecast out of one more location. Blacksod Bay, Ireland was the critical last piece. But the Republic of Ireland was officially neutral, so the report had to be sent secretly, directly from the keeper of the Blacksod Lighthouse. So, in theory, Ted Sweeney, Irish lighthouse keeper, was the person who assured the success of the Allied invasion, along with his wife Maureen. The little things cut both ways. But what about Field Marshal Erwin Rommel? If he'd have been in Normandy preparing for invasion on the morning of the 6th, instead of in Berlin preparing for a birthday party, what would that have meant for D-Day? I don't know. Nothing, maybe. Everything, perhaps? The command structure of the German military was incredibly inflexible, so without Rommel there to give the orders, it's possible that the defenders underperformed. But that same inflexibility might have gone the other way. Even when Rommel did finally arrive back in France the night of the 6th, there wasn't a whole lot he could do because the only person who had the power to call up the reserves was Hitler himself, and he had declined. So... Perhaps Rommel might have repelled the invasion, or more thoroughly slowed it, or maybe that die was already cast. Like all alternative histories, it's impossible to know. What is known is that by the time the landers opened up on Omaha Beach, Rommel was already disillusioned with the war, and with Hitler. How much he'd ever bought into the cultier and anti-Semitic aspects of National Socialism is a debated question, although that said debate even exists is enough to tell you that if he opposed them, he opposed them quietly. By the same token, though, it's fairly evident that Nazism wasn't a main driver for Rommel. Instead, like many of Germany's elite, he was interested in revitalizing the nation and projecting keen military might. Hitler did a good job of both those things, so they were willing to overlook the genocide and dreams of a thousand-year Reich and little stuff like that. For a while, at least. But by the time he was put in charge at Normandy, Rommel's faith in Hitler and in the war had entirely buckled. Staring down the barrel of the largest amphibious invasion in the history of the world, Rommel believed that his defenses would ultimately fail. Germany would lose the war and pay dearly for its cruelty, brutality, and mad ambition. From his barracks at the Chateau La Roche-Guyon, he began urging Hitler to make peace while he still could. After the Normandy invasion, as France devolved into a grinding war of attrition which Germany could not hope to hold, Rommel redoubled his pleas for peace. And Hitler told him, flat out, that he was naive and idealistic. No one will make peace with me, he told Rommel. And he was probably right. Adolf Hitler was, after all, Adolf Hitler. Among his many other shining personality traits, he was the least trustworthy man to walk Europe since Napoleon, and every bit as loathed. The idea that Roosevelt, Churchill, or even Stalin would negotiate with him was ridiculous, and the chances that any agreement could be reached that would allow him to walk free were absurd. Well, if your leadership is the obstacle to peace, Rommel told Hitler, then you should step down or commit suicide. 
There is plenty not to like about Erwin Rommel, but looking Adolf Hitler in the face and telling him to off himself is undeniably badass. What Hitler didn't know was how real the threat was. By the time they had this standoff, Rommel had already been approached by Alexander von Falkenhausen, the German military governor of occupied Belgium, about a secret plan. He and a number of other top military brass, politicians, and German high houses were calling it Operation Valkyrie, and its main aims were the establishment of a new German government, a decapitation of Nazi leadership, and the assassination of Adolf Hitler. The brain trust behind Operation Valkyrie believed they needed an active, young, popular, and powerful military leader behind them who could marshal the German army after the chaos of the initial strike, and Erwin Rommel was just the guy for the job. But Rommel was uneasy with the plan. He didn't like the idea of killing Hitler. We don't know why, although there are a lot of solid explanations, some of which are easier to sympathize with than others. Maybe Rommel thought that lawlessness was unlikely to give birth to peace and democracy, or that the world deserved the real justice of having Hitler tried in public for his crimes. He seems to have believed, or hoped at least, that the Fuhrer was still a rational actor who could be reasoned with. And it's entirely plausible that he continued to have leftover affection and loyalty for his leader. Whatever the exact calculus, Rommel decided that Hitler should be arrested, rather than killed. At that very meeting, where he suggested Hitler kill himself, Rommel planned to seize the Fuhrer, but his personal guard, which Rommel had formerly headed up, was too formidable, so the plan was nixed. How much Rommel knew about or supported the plan to kill Hitler is widely disputed. Unlike so many criminal conspiracies, the plotters of Operation Valkyrie did a pretty good job of not keeping notes. It seems likely that Rommel knew there was to be a coup and that he might even have supported it or planned to take over the military in its aftermath, but he might have somehow still believed Nazism could be overthrown without killing its figurehead. Whether you're familiar with the details or not, you can probably surmise that the plan to assassinate Hitler failed. On July 20th, 1944, Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg delivered a suitcase bomb into a meeting of Nazi generals, including Hitler, and left. The bomb exploded, killing three top Nazi officers as well as the meeting minutes taker and injuring many others, including Hitler. But he didn't die. The plot was doomed. There was no way that the military would turn as long as their leader was alive. At least, not without the word of Erwin Rommel, who had been injured himself by an Allied airplane three days earlier. With Hitler left alive and Rommel sidelined by his injuries, there was no possibility for the coup to succeed. By the end of the day, it had been put down and soon thousands of possible conspirators were being rounded up and executed. Rommel was named as one of them and as a possible president for the post-Nazi order. Instead of unceremoniously killing him, Hitler gave Rommel an option. He could stand trial, publicly, where he would be found guilty and executed along with his wife and child, or he could take the advice he'd given his leader the month before and commit suicide. Rommel chose the latter. Eventually, so did Hitler.
And it's entirely possible that none of these things, the invasion's success, the coup's failure, the march on Berlin, the bunker suicide, would have occurred if Erwin Rommel wouldn't have gone home to give Lou her shoes. Like outer space in the first Little Things episode, war is a particularly fertile ground for small accidents to have gargantuan repercussions. Like, for example, accidentally falling asleep for an inopportune minute on a New York City elevated train. That was the mistake Heinrich Friedrich Albert made on the 24th of July, 1915. He was riding the 6th Avenue train from his office at 45 Broadway to his hotel at the Ritz-Carlton, as he did most every day. He'd initially boarded the train with a business associate, but said associate had alighted at 33rd Street, leaving Albert alone for the last 17 blocks of his trip. So, like so many commuters before and after him, Heinrich Albert dozed off. He awoke just as the doors were closing at 50th Street, and just in time to realize he was about to miss his stop. He leapt up in that kind of waking train panic and dashed off onto the platform just in time. But in his haste, he quickly realized he had forgotten his suitcase on the seat next to him. Just who was Heinrich Friedrich Albert, you might be wondering. And as it happens, the United States Secret Service was wondering the same thing. They knew Albert was the son of a merchant and a lawyer by training. They knew he'd come to the United States in 1904 to serve as an attaché to the German government's official presence at the St. Louis World's Fair, and that he was officially back in the country as commercial attaché to the German embassy. What they didn't know was why he was doing business out of 45 Broadway, or what that business might be. They were about to find out, though, because the Secret Service had an agent on board the 6th Avenue train along with Albert. And before the latter could slip back on in a panicked search for his discarded briefcase, the former had surreptitiously made off with it. On July 24, 1915, World War I had been blazing in Europe for almost exactly a full year, but the United States remained officially neutral. That neutrality wasn't exactly neutrally applied, though. The Entente powers, particularly France and the United Kingdom, had stronger relationships with the United States than Germany, the Ottomans, and the other central powers. And they were better geographically positioned to gather the fruits of those relationships. With so much of Europe fully engulfed in war, the continent had no shortage of shortages. They needed ammunition and food beyond any nation's ability to create, and they needed money to buy it all. American industry was happy to sell food to France and England and happy to step up weapons and ammo production to sell to them too. And American banks were even happier to extend loans and lines of credit to them to pay for all that bread and bullets. Meanwhile, the British Navy had formed a blockade in the North Sea which made German trade with the Americas nearly impossible. In many ways, the Central Powers appeared to have the upper hand in the first few years of the war, but Britain and France had the power of Olive Garden at their disposal. Free and unlimited breadsticks. And a lot of the breadsticks were guns! 
Germany understood the American problem from the moment war was first declared. What they didn't understand was how to solve it. The best thing would be for Germany to win over American sentiment to their side, but that hardly seemed possible. The transatlantic cables that brought news of the war to the U.S. were operated by England, giving the American public a very pro-ally view of the conflict. Not that Germany had been doing themselves an awful lot of PR favors, what with their invasion of neutral Belgium and their massacring of civilians and all. So the second best thing would have to do. Germany needed a way to spread propaganda domestically within the United States, and they needed to sabotage the transport of munitions from America to the Entente. In other words, they needed a spy ring. Luckily for them, Germany had the largest and most far-reaching espionage operation in the entire world. Less luckily, nearly all of that espionage operation was focused in France, Great Britain, and Russia, because Germany and America had been cordial before the start of the war and were even now officially neutral, Germany didn't have much of a clandestine operation in-country, and any insertion of spies into America was bound to be noticed. So, the Jerrys had to jerry-rig an international espionage racket. A week and a half after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, Johann Heinrich Graf von Bernsdorf, German ambassador to the United States, was recalled to Berlin and given new marching orders. Bernsdorf had played a diplomatic and largely ceremonial role between the nations. Now, he would be in charge of the German-American spy ring. And his underlings, likewise career diplomats, would be his agents, including commercial attaché Heinrich Albert. The upshot of turning white-collar dinner toasters into covert agents is that nobody would see it coming. The downside, however, was that they had no idea what they were doing. And the World War I German-American influence and sabotage operation could probably have a whole episode to itself. They were a regular gang that couldn't shoot straight. Ambassador Bernsdorf was given help in the form of Captain Franz von Papen, who would eventually go on to serve as vice chancellor under Adolf Hitler, but who was at the time the German military attaché to Mexico. With his military training, von Papen would be in charge of the first leg of the operation, executing acts of sabotage mainly to slow the delivery of American arms to Canada. Von Papen oversaw a zany plan to blow up the Welland Canal west of Buffalo, which was foiled when his men realized they were being tailed by the Secret Service. One of his spies was recalled to Germany and immediately turned himself over to Scotland Yard and gave up the whole plan. Von Papen then oversaw an even zanier plan to blow up the St. Clair Railroad Tunnel between Michigan and Ontario via the use of a pair of roller skates stuffed with dynamite. Those agents failed when one of them got cold feet about blowing up Canadian soldiers at a barracks in Windsor, and the whole group was arrested. After this string of failed bombings, von Papen turned to our dozy commuter, Heinrich Albert, for a new, less explosive plan. Along with naval attaché and fellow unlikely spymaster, Captain Carl Boyed, they set up an office at 45 Broadway, from which they could launch quieter maneuvers. At first, 45 Broadway served mainly as a HQ for a budding operation to obtain U.S. passports. 
German agents would walk around the battery, searching out longshoremen, winos, and bowery bums who they could convince to apply for passports. Then they'd buy them for around 20 bucks a pop and use them for all kinds of illicit travels. They could bring sympathetic German Americans to the front lines. They could bring German spies into England as Americans. They could even send some German agents who actually knew what they were doing back to New York. The problem, though, was that soon enough, some of the hobos and roustabouts Albert's men were using to get passports started getting suspicious. They were happy to earn an easy $20 here and again until they stopped to wonder why someone was paying them for passports and whether they could be paid more. Soon enough, Albert's agents were being blackmailed, and from there, the Department of Justice got wind of the operation. They arrested Carl Rorode the point man for the passport scheme, in a sting operation that also led to the busting up of four German spies sailing under the fake papers. The bombings had largely flopped, the passport operation had hit the skids, and more and more of Germany's untrained American agents were landing in prisons every day. But Heinrich Albert had plans, better plans, more subtle plans, to further the German cause in the States. Dynamite roller skates, phony passports built by teams of Manhattan drunks, it was all too clever by half. Heinrich Albert wasn't a spy master after all, he was a businessman, a lawyer, a commercial attaché. It was time he stopped pretending to have skills he didn't and to start using the ones he did have. He transformed 45 Broadway into a sort of business center, forming a new company that was, uh, frankly, a pretty brilliant ploy. It was called the Bridgeport Projectile Company, and it was, ostensibly, a munitions company. It did all the things a munition company might do. It built a factory, it bought materials, it sought out contracts, and it hired workers. The only thing it didn't do was make munitions. Instead, the Bridgeport Projectile Company's real aim was to gum up the works. They'd buy up as much metal and gunpowder and other sensitive materials as they could and waste them. They'd outbid other munitions companies and then fail to deliver. And they'd pay their workers exorbitant salaries that would artificially drive up the labor market and foment strikes. It was a really clever idea. And unlike a few sticks of dynamite in a railroad tunnel or four or five German-American soldiers traveling to the Western Front, it had the potential to really make an impact, to shift the tide of the war against the Allies. Until Heinrich Halbert fell asleep on the 6th Avenue Harlem-bound elevated train. The Bridgeport Projectile Company wasn't the only pot Albert had on the fire at 45 Broadway. He also rented out office space there to George Sylvester Virick. If that name sounds familiar to you, it is probably because of this. I pledge undivided allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. In the 1930s, Virick became the most prominent supporter of Nazism in the United States. 
he spread an America-first political wing that culminated in a 1939 event in which 20,000 American Nazis marched on Madison Square Garden with all the trappings of National Socialism. Zig Heils, swastikas, iron eagles, and a giant painting of George Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, I feel demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it. If you ask what we are actively fighting for under our charter, first, a social, just, white, Gentile ruled United States. Second, Gentile-controlled labor union, free from Jewish Moscow-directed domination. Recently, Virik has been one of the main subjects of Rachel Maddow's podcast, Ultra, which I really recommend checking out. It details an even more serpentine influence operation headed by Virik to subvert American members of Congress with pro-Nazi propaganda. But all that was 25 years away in 1915. In the early days of the First World War, Virik was known first and foremost as a writer of poetry and vampire novellas. Yes, you heard me. But even then, he was steadfastly loyal to his native Germany and became editor of a pro-Kaiser newspaper he formed called The Fatherland. The Fatherland wasn't subtle in its support of Germany. Every issue included explicit pleas for America to remain neutral and painted a picture of Germany as a noble nation beleaguered by evil Frenchmen and Tsarists. By July of 1915, the Secret Service had come to suspect that the Fatherland wasn't an organic publication, that Virik was being bankrolled by Germany to spread propaganda. And on July 24th, they confirmed they were right. Two Secret Service agents, William Houghton and Frank Burke, had tailed Virick to the office of the Fatherland at 45 Broadway that day, and when he exited with an unknown associate carrying a briefcase, the agents followed them on to the 6th Avenue train. When Virick got off at 33rd Street, Houghton followed him, but Burke stayed behind to keep tabs on his mystery acquaintance, who then, as we know, fell asleep. A trained spy would have known better than to catch shut-eye in public. Moreover, a trained spy might have known better than to keep every record of every nefarious plot in one briefcase. But Albert wasn't a trained spy. He was a businessman and lawyer, and apparently these things had never occurred to him. Heinrich Albert awoke just in time to detrain at 50th Street, but in his haste, he'd forgotten his briefcase, and the second he passed onto the platform, Frank Burke had struck, lifting the briefcase, covering it with his coat, and coolly walking away. Moments later, Albert realized his error and stumbled back onto the train, only to find the briefcase missing. Inside of it were all the plans, receipts, books, and blueprints, not just the monthly fee being paid to publish the Fatherland, not just the counterfeit Bridgeport Projectile Company papers, but all manner of other schemes, bribes paid to American newspaper editors, the budget for pro-German films, payment for lecturers. There were plans to monopolize the American supply of chlorine gas, plans to blow up munition factories, plans to buy out the Wright Brothers Airplane Company and use its patents to bolster the German Air Force. 
Heinrich Albert and the entire German influence operation were screwed. Or maybe not. After failing to retrieve his papers, Albert called an emergency meeting with von Papen and Boyed to tell them what had happened. The three doe-eyed optimists decided that Albert had probably been the victim of a simple pickpocket who would never be able to piece together what he had. They decided to run a classified ad in the New York Evening Telegram. Lost on Saturday, on 330 Harlem Elevated Train at 50th Street Station, brown leather bag containing documents, delivered to G.H. Hoffman, 5 East 47th Street, against $20 reward. Of course, Agent Burke wasn't about to claim it. Instead, he took the papers straight to his boss, the head of the Secret Service, who then took them to his boss, the Secretary of the Treasury, William McAdoo, who then took them to his boss, President Woodrow Wilson. Since Albert was an accredited diplomat, and since the United States was officially neutral, the Secret Service couldn't be seen to have taken the documents. Instead, the U.S. government leaked them to the New York world and insinuated that they'd been purloined by British MI6 agents. The world's reporting outed the hapless Albert as a spy, it doomed the Bridgeport Projectile Company plot, and it exposed Virick's newspaper as a German propaganda operation. What could have been a covert operation that solidified German advantage in Europe instead did the opposite. When the United States finally did join the Allies in 1917, the contents of Albert's briefcase played a supporting role in justifying the American war effort. The U.S. Espionage Act, passed in the wake of the war declaration, was specifically inspired by Albert's briefcase, which would never have been found if he'd managed to stay awake for 15 minutes. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. The first casualty of war is the plan, and sometimes I'm faced with problems that I just don't know what to do with. Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual, so when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or becoming a parent. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. That can mean learning coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, or any number of other critical things you might need. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash the constant. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Every sound my phone makes sends a shudder down my spine. Well, aside from that one, because that is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. 
Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you will too. Shopify makes selling simple so you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash the constant to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash the constant. It's safe to say that Philip Davison Seabree was having a good day when he woke up on February 20th, 2009. It was his wife's 50th birthday, and he was able to take her out of their native Cardiff, Wales, to vacation in the Maldives. Davison Seabree was an engineer, and since 2003, a part owner of Taylor & Sons Limited, an engineering firm in Neath. Taylor & Sons mostly worked in steel and had a couple orders to build lifeboat stations. The company, which employed 250 people, had been around since 1875 and was still going strong under Davison Seabree's leadership. Or so he thought, until he looked up from the crystal blue waters of the Maldives that February morning to answer his phone. On the other end of the line was a representative of Chorus Steel, his biggest client, who brought in about 400,000 pounds monthly to Taylor & Sons. Chorus wanted a meeting, in person, as soon as possible. Philip explained that was impossible, that he was 4,500 miles away, to which Chorus responded with indignation. What the hell was he doing on a tropical island while his company was going bankrupt? Davis and Seabree, naturally, had no idea what they were talking about. But the chorus rep soon read it out loud, verbatim, a notice from Company's House that Taylor and Sons had entered liquidation and was being wound up by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. There had to be some mistake, Davis and Seabree assured them. Taylor and Sons was doing brisk business. It was definitely not in liquidation. If you're not now, you soon will be, replied Chorus. He immediately phoned back to Neath, where he found a company in absolute chaos. Customers were irate, canceling orders, suppliers were recalling materials and equipment, creditors were demanding payment. Davis and Seabee tried to calm his frazzled employees. Whatever was going on, he maintained, it was just a simple mistake. And whatever that mistake was, they'd be able to fix it. He was half right. Up until the 1840s, the only way you could officially form a company in England or Wales was through an act of parliament or a charter from the king or queen. 
1844, there were, again, officially, only 119 companies between the two countries. Every other business, every pub and tailor and butcher and shipyard operated unofficially as unincorporated associations comprised of everyone associated with said business. This, as you might imagine, was a suboptimal arrangement. If you as a customer were harmed by a business, you would have to lodge suit against every individual associated with it. And if you were an employee of said business, you might end up being personally liable for actions taken that you had nothing to do with. Not to mention that since the vast majority of British businesses were unofficial, they were also effectively unregulated, with anyone able to call themselves whatever they wanted on Monday and then change to whatever new name on Tuesday. So in 1844, Parliament passed the Joint Stock Companies Act of 1844, which both allowed and required all companies to be officially registered with a new agency, Companies House. Companies House presented a low bar of entry for the formation and tracking of businesses, and it made it so that there was a public accounting of the status of all public companies. So, for instance, it was someone's job to update company addresses, annual revenues, and their financial standings. In 2009, the people doing that last part were in the weeds. The subprime mortgage crisis had spiraled into the Great Recession. Some of the biggest companies in the world, unscalable juggernauts, were being brought low day after day. So nobody would have batted an eye when the Welsh firm Taylor & Son Limited announced liquidation, and that information was duly entered into the company's house register. With one small error. An extra S. In reality, Taylor & Son Limited was bankrupt. But in bureaucratic reality, the wound-up company was Taylor & Sons, plural. The engineering firm co-owned by Philip Davison Seabree. The issue was soon discovered and corrected within three days of publication. But unfortunately, bureaucratic reality is in some ways more real than the physical world. And by the time Companies House fixed its typo, that typo had spread to every corner of cyberspace. Credit agencies got an alert about Taylor & Sons' liquidation, but got no such alert about the correction. And every attempt by Davison Seabree and his co-workers to assure creditors, lenders, customers, and sellers that things were okay were met by skepticism. Who were they supposed to believe? Some guy on the other end of a telephone or the internet? While Companies House had done their best to make bureaucracy gel with reality, in the end, they accomplished the opposite. In a bit of self-fulfilling prophecy, their mistaken announcement of bankruptcy precipitated the real thing. Davis and Seabree sued Companies House and won an 8.8 .8 million pound judgment in 2015. He's been attempting to rebuild the family business anew ever since. All right, we started this episode out with a birthday party, then a short train-bound catnap, then a single errant S, but we can go smaller. Let's get down to the microscopic level, to nematodes or roundworms, which I suppose can be like errant S's themselves sometimes. The nematodes in question 
were parasitically living within some wild Estonian rats, and those rats had recently been collected by a Danish pathologist named Johan Fibiger. At the time, Fibiger was studying tuberculosis, but his attention was drawn to his wild-caught lab rats and their nematodes, because it seemed to Fibiger that some of the rats which were infected with the nematode also had stomach cancer. It was 1907, and in case I need to say it, people in 1907 understood very little about cancer. Way back in 1775, the British orthopedic physician Percival Pott had noticed that young chimney sweeps were prone to a certain otherwise rare form of scrotal cancer, which has henceforth been called chimney sweeps carcinoma. Pott's observation was the first solid evidence that cancer could have an environmental cause, and for a long while after him, there wasn't much more to say. Pott's paper instigated a number of social reform laws to protect chimney sweeps, and it created a lot of debate about just how soot or heat or bricks might create tumors, but there just wasn't much more definitive out there. In 1872, Hilario Gigouveia, a Brazilian ophthalmologist, successfully removed the eye of a young boy suffering from retinoblastoma. The boy survived, grew up, married, and had several children before coming back to Gigouveia. Two of his daughters needed treatment now for retinoblastoma. In 1886, Gigouveia published a report in which he, for the first time in history, suggested a hereditary link to cancer. But now, in 1907, Johann Fibiger believed he was onto a third way, a cancer caused by a pathogen. So he dropped his TB research and began a new experiment, injecting nematode eggs into previously uninfected lab rats and tracking their development. What he found was that many of the infected rats developed tumors, which he determined to be metastatic. In a series of three papers, he produced his results, and in 1926, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine for the first evidence of cancer caused by a parasite. After Fibiger's discovery, and perhaps because of Fibiger's discovery, a whole menagerie of new carcinogenic agents were found. Peyton Roos found a virus which caused cancer in chickens two years later. Katsusabara Yamagiwa found he could cause skin cancer in rabbits by applying coal tar to their ears, not to mention any number of other cancer-causing parasites. So far, so good. Except that the nematodes Fibiger had injected into his lab rats do not cause cancer. A month after he was awarded the Nobel Prize, Fibiger died from a heart attack. Seven years after that, Richard Douglas Passy demonstrated that his discovery had been in error. There were two important things that Fibiger hadn't known when he undertook his experiment. That his lab rats were vitamin A deficient, and that vitamin A deficiency can cause stomach cancer. The rats were fed an incidentally vitamin A-free diet, which created the conditions for the cancer. The roundworms damaged cells in the stomach, which caused the tumors to form, yes, but any tissue damage would have done that. The role of the nematodes was totally coincidental. The discovery, which had done so much for our understanding of cancer, had been wrong. But there's another irony to the story of Johann Fibiger. 
Years after his death, his main discovery was unveiled as a Nobel Prize winning mistake. But years after that, it was discovered that he'd made another, earlier discovery that was even more prize worthy. During his doctoral work at the University of Copenhagen, Fibiger studied diphtheria and in the course of his work developed a new blood serum against the disease. At the time, it was generally believed that serums were ineffective against diphtheria, but Fibiger suspected that was wrong, that the problem was that there hadn't been a good enough experiment for them. So, he convinced his professor to conduct a new experiment of his own devising on the serum. At the diphtheria ward, patients were divided into two groups at random. The first group received the then-standard treatment, while the second group received all of that, plus Fibiger's blood serum. After a year, 30 of the control group patients had died from the disease, while only 8 of the serum group had. Not only had Fibiger developed an effective treatment for diphtheria, but later researchers realized he had done something even more important. He had developed and implemented the world's first randomized clinical trial. So, I guess we can let him keep his award. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We can go smaller and still stay on the subject of Nobel Prizes. For our final story, we are shrinking down to subatomic size and taking a look at the electron. In 1897, physicist J.J. Thompson discovered that there was a negatively charged subatomic particle in one of the most famous and brilliant experiments in science history, the cathode ray tube experiment. But we have already described the cathode ray tube experiment on at least two separate occasions, so this time we're talking about another of the most famous and brilliant experiments in science history, the oil drop experiment. J.J. Thompson had showed that atoms were made of smaller particles, at least some of which were negatively charged, and he called those particles electrons. 
But there was plenty he couldn't work out about them, including just precisely how negatively charged they were. What was the power of the charge of an electron? It seemed like an impossible question to answer. After all, Thomson had shown that these electrons were thousands of times smaller than a hydrogen atom. So how could you isolate and measure the charge of such a tiny and elusive thing? And that is where Robert Andrews Millikan and Harvey Fletcher come in. Beginning in 1908, Millikan, a young associate professor at the University of Chicago, and Fletcher, an even younger graduate student there, began working on an experiment that would isolate and measure the elementary charge of the electron. What they came up with was a procedure so brilliantly elegant, simple, and convincing that it became a hallmark for science students throughout the century and convinced even Thomson doubters like Thomas Edison that electrons were real. Here's how it went. Picture a heavy-duty sealed container, like a cross between a paint can and a submarine, all reinforced and riveted. At the top of the paint can is an atomizer, like for spraying old-timey perfume at reluctant would-be customers at Gimbel's. Except that instead of Chanel number no. 5, this atomizer is filled with oil, which is ejected as a superfine mist into the can when you squeeze the bulb. Nothing especially interesting about the setup so far. Atomizer in the can, you spray some oil, and, like you'd expect, the oil mist slowly falls to the bottom. Because, you know, gravity. Here's where things start to get twisty, though. About halfway down the can, there is a metal plate with a small hole through the middle. So, actually, only a very small portion of the oil mist is going to hit the bottom. The rest is going to land on the plate. And, actually, the plate is attached to another plate that runs across the entire bottom of the can. And that whole thing is wired with electric current. Didn't see that coming, did ya? When Millikan and Fletcher ran a current through the plate, they created an electromagnet. The plate running through the middle of the barrel, the one with the hole in it, carried the negative charge, and the one running down the bottom carried the positive one. And in that chamber between the plates, there was a microscope, which allowed them to look into the barrel and view a single, solitary corpuscle of oil mist as it fell through the hole. When the electromagnet was powered down, the results were predictable. The oil drop fell to the bottom because, you know, gravity. But as the oil was misted and fell through the top of the container, it lost electrons and became positively charged, which means that once you kicked on the magnet, things got funky. Turn the magnet all the way up, and the oil drop would actually ascend away from the positively charged plate at the bottom and towards the negatively charged plate with the hole in it. That proved that the oil drop was, in fact, positively charged, but the point was to get more granular. Because the electro part of the electromagnet was on a dial, and Millikan and Fletcher's goal was to find the balance. As the drop hoved into their microscope's view, they'd flip the magnet on just barely, and the drop's fall would slow. Then they'd carefully dial it up, notch by notch, until the drop was suspended, levitating in mid-air. 
At that point, they had every part of the equation they needed. They'd created an equilibrium between the upward force of electricity and the downward force of, you know, gravity. When the drop levitated, the force of gravity was equal to the force of electricity. And since they, you know, knew gravity, they knew what that force was. And since they also knew how much voltage they were pumping into the magnet and the mass of the oil drop and a few other minor factors, oh, put an asterisk there, they had everything they needed to solve for X, with X being the charge of the drop. Milliken and Fletcher levitated a lot of oil drops, and each time they did the math and determined the charge of each one. And as they filled out their little charge spreadsheet, they soon noticed a pattern. They measured the charge in a very tiny and very fun to say unit called septicoulombs. The smallest charge they found was, uh, and I'm rounding off here, 160 septicoulombs. And intriguingly, every other result they got was a multiple of 160. 320 septicoulombs, 480 septicoulombs, 640 septicoulombs, etc. Septicoulombs, septicoulombs, it's a very good vaporwave band name if you're looking. There's never a result below 160, and there's never a result between multiples of 160. And Milliken and Fletcher knew why. As the oil drops were atomized and fell through the barrel, they became positively charged, and the charge they gained came in discrete amounts because it came from losing electrons, each one of which was 160 septicoulombs. The drop with a charge of 160, it only lost one electron. The drop with a charge of 320 lost two electrons. 480 lost three, 640 lost four, and so on. 160 septicoulombs is the charge of the electron. They'd done it. Milliken and Fletcher had discovered one of the fundamental measurements of the universe. For this, Milliken was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1923. Fletcher, unfortunately, didn't get his name on the paper, though he probably deserved to, but at least Milliken got him a job at Bell Labs, where he went on to invent stereophonic sound and some of the earliest electronic hearing aids. But that is not the point. The point is that Milliken and Fletcher, for all their ingenuity and genius, were wrong. Not very wrong, just a tiny, eensy bit wrong. The more precise, less rounded measurement they'd come up with for the electron wasn't 160 septicoulombs. It was more like 159.24. And the actual electron charge, as we know it today, is more like 160.21. I'm still rounding here because the decimal places go on for a while. Like I say, it's not a big difference. Milliken and Fletcher's measurements were off by just six tenths of a percent. Pretty good, really. The problem was that Milliken and Fletcher had gotten one of the other minor variables that I asterisked earlier wrong. They had misfigured the viscosity of air, which is obviously going to have an effect on how things float in air, right? Now, here is the interesting part. The oil drop experiment was a watershed moment in physics, not just because of what it found, but because of how it was built. It was a really brilliant piece of experimental science. And so, like I said, lots of people over the years went on to replicate it. 
And most of the people who did, well, they didn't make the mistake Milliken and Fletcher had. They got the viscosity of air right. So all of those experimenters ought to have gotten the correct number, 160.21. But they didn't. In 1974, Richard Feynman, physicist, science writer, and one of this show's primary inspirations, gave a commencement speech at Caltech in which he explained what had happened. When people redid the oil drop experiment and got numbers larger than Millikan's 159.24, they assumed they were wrong. Because Robert Millikan was a totemic force of physics, a genius, not just a Nobel Prize winner, but a Nobel Prize winner for exactly that number. So they assumed the mistake must have been theirs, or at least mostly it was theirs. Instead of a big, abrupt correction, what followed was a years-long creep as the charge of the electron slowly sidled from one experiment to the next, up from 159.24 to its current 160.21. Why didn't they discover that the new number was higher right away? Asked Feynman. It's a thing that scientists are ashamed of, this history, because it's apparent that people did things like this. When they got a number that was too high above Millikan's, they thought something must be wrong, and they would look for and find a reason why something might be wrong. When they got a number closer to Milliken's value, they didn't look so hard. And so they eliminated the numbers that were too far off and did other things like that. We've learned those tricks nowadays, and now we don't have that kind of disease. Oh, Feynman, if only you were right. But the long history of learning how to not fool ourselves, of having utter scientific integrity, is, I'm sorry to say, something that we haven't specifically included in any particular course that I know of. We just hope you've caught on by osmosis. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. So you have to be very careful about that. After you've not fooled yourself, it's easy not to fool other scientists. You just have to be honest in a conventional way after that. Now we're going to return to this principle and to this address next year in a series I've started working on that I'm really excited about. But for now, I think it's good enough to leave you with this key axiom of Mr. Feynman's. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. That I think is maybe the most important little thing we can possibly know. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. A whole bunch of you responded to last episode's call for support, and I'm super grateful to everyone. If you're still thinking about it, you can go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up and get ad-free early access to new episodes, as well as monthly bonus content. And hey, since the holidays are upon us, maybe you or someone you listen to this show with could use some merch. We've got a whole bunch of designs available on our website. Tesla death ray shirts, fool killer hoodies, fucking Aristotle everything. Heather has a Jeff the Talking Mongoose tote bag that she carries everywhere, and it is pretty rad, I must say. Go check it all out, constantpodcast.com, and navigate over to the shop tab. In two weeks, I'll have a very special Christmas episode for you that I'm quite excited about. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where that very oil drop experiment took place, this has been The Constant.
Boy, we're going to beat up on Germany a lot this episode. Sorry, Germany. You did kind of earn it. 